Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. When you get to that part of the ballot that asks you to vote for a local judge, have you ever thought, why am I being asked to vote on judges? The practice of voting for judges is deeply unusual. Only a single other country in the world, Bolivia, elects the majority of its judges. Here, federal judges are appointed, but judges in 39 states stand for some kind of election. So, Why do we vote on state and county judges if basically every democracy in the world has decided that popular elections are not the way to fill a judiciary? We'll talk about the arguments for and against and the evidence for how the new era of big budget races has affected the decisions that judges make. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is the latest edition of our ongoing series, Doing Democracy, which aims to tackle the specific ways that we practice democracy here in this country. And for today's show, we're looking at an American custom that's highly unusual. Almost no other country elects judges. On top of that, consider our campaign finance system. We not only have judicial elections, but winning one requires raising money from the very people who may come before you in the court of law. Nowadays, as we'll hear, many swing state Supreme Court elections are big budget affairs in which the vast majority of money going to candidates originates with special interest groups, and even a majority of judges themselves agree that this influences their decisions. Here to talk with us about the situation, we're joined first by Michael Kang, co-author of Free to Judge, The Power of Campaign Money in Judicial Elections. Kang's a law professor at Northwestern School of Law. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by Judge LaDoris Cordell, a former Santa Santa Clara Superior Court judge and author of the memoir, Her Honor, My Life on the Bench, What Works, What's Broken, and How to Change It. Welcome, Judge Cordell. Uh, Glad to be here. Michael, why do we elect judges in the United States? Like, this isn't a common practice globally. Yeah, well, we have a really robust democratic culture in the United States um, compared to a lot of other developed uh, democracies. And we didn't always elect judges. Really, at the beginning of the republic, uh, it was largely an appointive system. What ended up happening was that the public and a lot of political elites felt that the judges, the appointed judges, ended up captured by the parties and they were perceived as party hacks. And 
I think that's pretty fair characterization of what occurred. <laughs> and so we gradually shifted to an elective system actually to deal with the politics, to try to put the the matter of judicial selection in the hands of the public, which a lot of people, at least reform types, thought um, would actually make judges more independent. So that's sort of how we ended mm. up toward this system. And it remains a popular, like if you poll Americans about this, it's, it's popular and you can kind of see why, like there's a there's an intuitive democratic logic to it. That's exactly right. Uh, judicial elections, while they have all kinds of flaws that even the public recognizes, uh, they end up being still pretty popular. Uh, there's not much of a reform push to get rid of them. And uh, I don't think that's probably very likely in any state right now. Yeah. So when we think about judges, you know, we often focus on the U.S. Supreme Court. But as you note in your book, I mean, most judicial matters come before state court judges. Can you tell us what kind of cases the state court resolving? Really, every type of law that you can imagine. Really, when we, when you think about law and you step back and look at the whole landscape, we pay so much attention to the U.S. Supreme Court and what federal judges do, um, but that's a fairly limited set of types of cases. They're often kind of the biggest, splashiest things, but really most of criminal law is dealt with at the state level. All of family law or almost all of family law is dealt with at the state level. So really when you're thinking about the kinds of law that affects you know, your life on a daily basis, almost all of that is decided by state courts on a daily basis. Hmm. And the federal courts really play a fairly limited role. We just pay a lot of attention to what the U.S. Supreme Court does because those are the most salient um, divisive political issues that the, the U.S. Supreme Court often has to decide. So we pay a lot of attention to it. But really, state courts, I think, overall are, are more important in people's daily lives. Judge Cordell, you ran for office when you first joined the bench. And I think you've said it's an experience you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. Uh, that That is true. Uh, actually, I began my judicial career with an appointment process being appointed by then-Governor Jerry Brown in the early 1980s. It was when I wanted to uh, run for an open seat on the Superior Court, and Superior Courts in California are now the trial courts, but back then there were two levels of trial courts, the lower one municipal where I was appointed, and then the Superior Court, um, also a trial court. Those two courts were consolidated in the mid-1990s, but back then uh, there was an open seat, and I, a judge had retired, and I wanted to move up. Uh, it was doubtful that I would get an appointment by the governor who was a conservative Republican. I was a feminist and liberal um, and woman of color. So I ran, and it was all about asking people for money. And most of the money that I raised, which was about $70,000 in today's dollars, that would be about a $155,000 was from lawyers. Uh, so I just felt uncomfortable just to begin with because some of these lawyers would end up appearing in my courtroom. So there was the money issue, but then there was more. There was really a distortion of the some of the decisions I'd made on the bench. Um, people um, who were supporting my opponent, who was a um, district, an assistant or deputy district attorney were, would take and pick apart decisions and not report on them accurately. Uh, so it was really um, a time where I had to spend hours campaigning, lawn signs, doing the whole bit and trying to get people to understand who I was. And more time was spent on really 
fending off the disparaging comments than really informing the public about what it is judges do. Hmm. You know, it's interesting, though, given that you wouldn't have been appointed uh, by the governor at that time. Shouldn't this sort of possibility of judicial elections, you know, opening up the this higher spot on the bench for you, shouldn't that make you a fan of judicial elections, even if it was, you know, uh, a, a bad experience in the process of it? Uh, and, and certainly there are people who feel that way, that uh, particularly if you are someone of color and women who are not um, represented on the bench, as I believe we should be, uh, to say, well, this is the one way we can get in. Um, and, and that is true as the, the system stands today. But that doesn't mean that the system works and it's the right way to go because that system, that elected system, is all about money. It's about yeah. dollars. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and instead, I believe that we should have an appointment system and it should be bolstered by a merit commission. That is, people from all political stripes, lay people, as well as people in the legal profession or retired people. The problem is, and we have something like that here in California now, the problem is that we have a commission, a Judicial Nominations and Evaluations Commission, uh, J-N-E, Jenny Commission. However, in California, the governor is not obligated mm. to appoint to the bench individuals who have been recommended for appointment by the commission. Oh, interesting. It's just purely voluntary. Like at the end, it's it's just a, a, a nice to have <laughs> I mean, that, that's the feeling one gets. And it's basically the governor can do what the governor wants, irregardless of what the Jenny Commission does. And frequently the governor follows the uh, recommendations, but there are times when the governor doesn't. And there's no uh, way to force the governor to do that. And I believe that needs to change. Mm. Uh, Michael King, when you start researching this topic and you look at a map of the United States and you try and say, like, well, how do different states do uh, judicial elections or not, because some states don't. It's wildly, it's a wild patchwork. It's not like the kind of maps that I'm used to looking at. Like there's no pattern to it. It seems like different states have all kind of gone in a few key directions, but there's still a lot of them. Yeah, there's lots of different uh, methods of uh, judicial selection. That's exactly right. It's about half and half in terms of some sort of straightforward election and half that do merit selection as the judge was uh, sort of describing, or at least some sort of merit selection. Um, and I think that's right that there's not really obvious patterns to how they've developed. I think each each state has its own history of how they ended up there. And there's always been this kind of push-pull between the politics and reform impulses. Um, I think the modern trend has been toward uh, merit selection uh, where the governor appoints with some sort of recommendation or off of a list provided by a committee or a commission. Um, I think that's sort of the modern trend, but straightforward judicial election is still pretty popular. And even those states divide between how they do it. Some states do uh, partisan elections, some do nonpartisan elections, and, and some do uh, some combination where it's appointive maybe at the beginning and then you have a retention election where the judge gets an election where it's either up or down. They either stay in office or don't. And then eventually, if the the, the seat's vacated, there is an election to replace uh, replace that judge who's been voted out. Um, but there's a there's a wide variety. Um, and uh, I think dissatisfaction with most of those forms of, of some sort. And we're still trying to figure out hmm. what the best system is. 
Yeah, I mean, if we think about the states as being these kind of laboratories for different policies, I mean, what does the data tell us about the experiments they've been running and how it changes the judiciary to have these different systems? Yeah, well, when what we've looked at mostly is the the campaign finance aspects of of uh, judicial elections, and and what we find is is not super surprising, but I think important to confirm empirically, which is that. The money matters, uh, and the more competitive the election, the more partisan, the more politicized, the more the money comes into the elections and affects judges. Um, and what we find is that uh, there is a, a clear effect of campaign contributions on the way that judges decide their cases. And we've looked at this all different kinds of ways. We've looked at money from business interests. We've looked at money from broad-based ideological coalitions. We looked at money from parties and. Every, every way we look at it uh, and we try to be really careful about what we control for and how we think about this, we find that the money influences judges. Now, it, it's not determinative. It doesn't mean that just because you've gotten money from a business interest, you're going to decide all the business cases a certain way. Um, but other things matter like law and the uh, strength of the case, of course. Uh, judges, I think, are trying to do a good job. But we find a clear effect that where judges have received money from certain interests, um, it influences their decision making in that direction. Yeah, and it I may not I'm, be conscious, but yeah. uh, but it seems to make an effect. And I think I'm remembering a chart correctly from your book that there's kind of a dose response effect, right? Like the more money that's given by business interests, say, the more likely that particular judge is to decide in favor of business interests in these cases. Exactly right. The more money that comes in the bigger the effect. And we're talking about fairly large dollar amounts now in, in a lot of these um, state Supreme Court races, which is largely what we focus on. Yeah. And I think the the dose was 100,000 more dollars equals a 3% greater change in, in business cases, which is uh, fascinating. Um, we're talking about judicial elections, why we elect state court judges. Do we want judges to campaign for their jobs? We're joined by Michael Kang, co-author of Free to Judge, The Power of Campaign Money in Judicial Elections, a law professor at Northwestern Law School. We're also joined by, joined by Judge LaDoris Cordell, who's a former Santa Clara Superior Court judge and author of the memoir, Her Honor, My Life on the Bench, What Works, What's Broken, and How to Change It. You know, this show was inspired by listeners like you in our Discord community. Thank you to Rich for suggesting this topic, and we want to hear more from listeners on this. Tell us, what are your concerns or uh, interest in judicial elections? The number is 866-733-6786, forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about judicial elections, why we elect 
state court judges? Do we want judges to campaign for their jobs? Is it the best way to get people onto the bench? Joined by Judge LaDoris Cordell, a former Santa Clara Superior Court judge and author of the memoir, Her Honor, My Life on the Bench, What Works, What's Broken, and How to Change It. Also joined by Michael Kang, co-author of Free to Judge, The Power of Campaign Money in Judicial Elections. Noting again, you know, this show is inspired by listeners like you who are in our digital community on Discord. Thanks to Rich for this. And we'd love to hear from more of you. Uh, What information would you need to feel more comfortable or confident in voting for judges? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786, forum at kqed.org. Judge Cordell, did the data that Michael Kang presented, does that surprise you at all that judges would be influenced in one way or another by by this campaign finance system? No, it doesn't surprise me at all, sadly. I have a chapter in my book called Judges for Sale, which is all about judicial elections. And I note in it the studies that have been done by the Brennan Center for Justice in New York. And one of the things, I mean, just so shocking to me, uh, for example, trial judges in Alabama impose death sentences more often in election years, sometimes overriding life sentence verdicts handed down by juries. This is how dramatic money has influenced those who are seeking to retain their seats on the bench or seeking re-election. Uh, so there's the problem of raising the money, and there's also this, just the influence of saying to the public, and really what this is all about is judges saying, I am really tough. You want me to be tough? I'll throw the book at people. Uh, and so uh, instead of judges being characterized as soft on crime, which really means showing mercy and compassion. So in election years, mercy and compassion are out. And what's in is being harsh, being severe. And that tends to get people to um, get votes to, for people to vote for judges who are asserting this, this real toughness. And it's very sad, especially because when that toughness is imposed, it's disproportionately Um, imposed upon poor people and people of color. So um, I am very disturbed as I write in the chapter in the book that uh, judicial elections are not uh, supportive of an independent judiciary. And most people in the public don't even understand what that means, an independent judiciary, which of course was one of the grievances against King George III when um, the, 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 politicians then were saying, and people here in the colonies were saying, you're controlling everything, including, and one of the grievances was, that the king was controlling all of the judges. So it was important back then, and is as important today, that we understand, appreciate, and support independence of the judiciary when, unfortunately, the judiciary judges are under attack, here, locally, as well as nationally. Yeah. I mean, I just want to highlight that it really directly contravenes the idea of justice to have different outcomes, depending on whether it's an election year or not. And I think that should be shocking to people, even if it's it's not. Um, Judge Cordell, it also, you know, it is happening right now that local politicians are accusing some judges of being the problem. San Francisco's district attorney and its mayor have said that judges are an obstacle to their efforts to address crime. Um, have you seen those efforts? And, and what do you think? Well, first, let me just respond to what's happening in San Francisco. And I say shame on them, shame on the mayor and shame on the district attorney for pointing the finger at judges and saying judges are the problem, Uh, because what it has done is spawned 
uh, groups of people who are determined now to go sit in and watch judges and grade them on how um, pro-law and order they are versus what judges are supposed to do, which is consider a number of factors, for example, in criminal cases. These individuals, the mayor, district attorney, and, and people who know better, um, are really taking a stance, opposing the independence of a judiciary, and it is so, so harmful. So I, I hope they will rethink their stands and stop pointing their fingers at judges for saying, you're the problem. Judges are not the problem. Judges follow rules. We have bail reform. This is legislation that judges are obligated to follow. So, uh, you know, before people start talking about the judiciary and how bad judges are, they need to understand how judges work, what the rules are, what the canons are, particularly here in California, what rules judges have to follow. And once people get an understanding of that, uh, I think they, they then get how important an independent judiciary is. Mm. Um, I just want to note that one of the people fro who, who's considering doing this uh, court watching, um, I believe, named Frank, writes in to say, Judicial independence does not mean independence from the people. It originally referred to freedom from the king. It now refers to independence from the executive branch and the legislative branch, not independence from the people. We are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. That's why election of judges is written into our state constitution. It encompasses the idea that judges should be accountable to the public they serve, ensuring impartiality and fairness in their decision-making. This accountability helps to maintain public trust and confidence in the judiciary. Judges who know they may be challenged in elections are more likely to remain responsive to the concerns and expectations of the community they serve. Elections can provide a buffer against our other potential sources of influence, such as political pressure or powerful interest groups or billionaires who give valuable favors to Justices Thomas and Alito. Knowing that they are ultimately accountable to the electorate, judges may be less susceptible to external pressures that could compromise their independence. Um, reminder, that was a comment uh, that came in there. Um, I wanted to ask you specifically about one uh, sentence of this comment, which is, judges who know they may be challenged in elections are more likely to remain responsive to the concerns and expectations of the community they serve. Again, there's like a democratic logic to that. That's why we have elections, accountability. What do we know about how this actually works in practice? Sure. I, I appreciate what the, the comments that Frank has made, but um, were what he describes, if that were the case, it would be great, but it really isn't. The people who are going into the courts and watching judges are coming in with a mindset. And the mindset is, we want judges who are going to be tough and lock people up. Um, so um, it's really the understanding about judicial independence is, is such that judges certainly are members of the community. But we don't want judges who, as Frank has said, well, you know, we, the people, the people should, they should be accountable to the people. Judges should be accountable to the Constitution. When, pe when judges are accountable to the people, what judges end up doing is looking around, putting their fingers to the wind to find out what it is the public wants. And judges then become very hesitant to make decisions that they believe are right, but which also may be controversial. So what you end up with are judges who are very wary, very wary about making decisions that they believe are right, but also worried about losing their jobs. So um, 
it's important, and I encourage people, like Frank, go to the courts and watch judges, but do it with an understanding about what judicial independence is. We want judges who listen to the evidence that come into the courtrooms and decide based on that, not about the clamor that's coming from the mob outside. I want to bring in another voice into this conversation. Uh, Teresa Johnson is the incoming president of the Bar Association of San Francisco here. Welcome to Forum, Teresa. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You know, the the current president of the Bar Association wrote in a recent op-ed in the San Francisco Chronicle that the current political environment around crime and its causes is pushing more partisanship into the judicial system. What, What do you have those same concerns? Uh, yes, I share those concerns, and and let me say I'm I'm so glad that we are here talking about these critical issues, and it's it's a pleasure to be on with with Judge Cordell and with Professor Kang. Um, from the Bar Association standpoint, you know, we understand the frustration with the challenges our city is facing. You know, I live in the city, and I see the the problems every day, uh, and your listeners see them too. You know, obviously, you know from the comment and and from other points, and. The Bar Association cares deeply about our city, our local economy, and and public safety. But let me just share and underscore some of the comments from Judge Cordell about how important it is, you know, given that understandable frustration, it is more important than ever from the standpoint of the rule of law that we respect the independence of the judiciary for the reason that our democracy rests on a system of checks and balances. And so the role of judges is to administer the laws, taking into account relevant facts and legal arguments. Effectively, judges are umpires. They're they're calling balls and strikes, and they're enforcing the rules, and their job is to be impartial. So what's the Bar Association doing to address some of these issues? Well, one of the things that we are doing is we are uh, speaking out, as you have seen from the the op-ed uh, we're in the process of engaging in dialogue with our membership and with uh, folks in the community who are engaged in this. We're standing up to defend judges who are being uh, targeted in attacks. And one of the things I think that's most important is that we, we know that democracy requires participation. It's worth noting that that I understand the title of this series is Doing Democracy. And in order to do democracy, we all need to be engaged and participate in an informed and thoughtful way. And to, to pick up on some of the things that uh, Judge Cordell was noting, going to hearings and seeing the justice system in process is so important. That's participating in our democracy. That's that's part of, of being an engaged uh, you know, part of the, the system. But sitting in a courtroom doesn't really provide you with the benefit of all the information that goes into a judge's decision. Briefings, the evidence, motions, applicable precedents, and so it just gives you a snapshot view of this multi-layered process. It's it's kind of like watching one play in a football game and and drawing a conclusion about which team is better based on that one play. Yeah, yeah, interesting. We are talking about judicial elections, why we elect state court judges, how it actually has played out in practice. Joined by Teresa Johnson, incoming president of the Bar Association of San Francisco, partner at the law firm of Arnold and Porter, also joined by Judge LaDoris Cordell, former Santa Clara Superior Court judge and author of the memoir, Her Honor, My Life on the Bench, What Works, What's Broken, and How to Change It, as well as Michael Kang, co-author of Free to Judge, The Power of Campaign Money in Judicial Elections, a law professor, Northwestern School of Law. 
Do you support voting for judges? You can give us a call. Number is 866-733-6786. Like, what information do you need to feel com- comfortable and confident in voting for judges? Again, the number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. Um, Judge Cordell, I did want to ask you about, I think, like a very basic question for a lot of people is just not having enough information about judges to really even know how to vote. And I think that's part of the context for people wanting to do this court watching activity, right, is this sense that you get to the part in your ballot, as we you know said at the top of the show, and you kind of go like, how am I supposed to know how to vote on a judge? I uh, can't tell you how many times I get calls from neighbors and friends uh, when before ballots are due about asking me questions. Who is this person? Uh, should I vote for this judge mm-hmm. or not? Uh, because there is such a lack of information. Uh, we need to do better. If When you look at the ballot statements, you'll see maybe a little blurb about the judge who may be running for re-election. And that blurb is written by the judge. So you're only going to see what that judge wants you to see. Uh, and so we need to do better. So I tell people what we have now, Google, um, and also go to the courts, look and observe these judges. Uh, but we need much more information. And I, I really call upon, for example, various chapters of the League of Women Voters to see what they can do to have forums held and just to provide more information to members of the public. We need to know who these people are in black robes. Yeah. Um, let's bring in a caller. Let's bring in Alexandra in Berkeley. Welcome, Alexandra. Hi, thank you. Um, My question has to do with this idea of impartiality. And, um, you know, my understanding of the of judges roles or sort of the judicial process is that they are to interpret the law to the best of their ability. And how is that not inherently subjective? Hmm. That's interesting. Judge Cordell, why why don't don't you take this on? Sure. Uh, It's a wonderful question. Judges are human beings, and every person who wears that black robe comes to the job with biases because every human being has biases. But what we are taught to do, and I say that because California has a judges college at which I taught for more than a decade, a course on judicial conduct and ethics, is to be aware of those biases and try to do your best you can to exclude them. That being said, Decisions that judges make, particularly if we look in the criminal side and sentencing, are indeed subjective. We are given guidelines, we are given rules, but at the same time we are told, do the the right thing, the best thing you can in applying these rules, these laws, and deciding what should happen to a person who has done something wrong and hurt other people. So of course there is going to be some subjectivity in this. But again, the training we get is that, you know, we we try to hold those biases aside and do what is best for society, for the victim, for the defendant. And that's really hard. It is perhaps the most difficult things that judges do. And I just hope that people can understand how difficult it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's good we have a system like this. Instead of having computers just decide a person did this, they should go away. And that was the mandatory minimum sentencing we had under three strikes, which wreaked havoc in California in terms of mass incarceration Mm -hmm. and the incarceration disproportionately of people of color. So it's a very good question. and, And I hope that people will understand judging is not what you see on TV with these what I call clown shows on these court shows on TV. This is real serious hard stuff where, yes, there is 
objectivity, but there is, of course, going to be some subjectivity as well. Yeah. You know, Michael Kang, in your book, you talk about this Blankenship case before the Supreme Court, which really tries to get at how does bias work, particularly when money is involved? Could you guys like tell us a little bit about that story and how how Justice Roberts kind of tried to get at this issue? Yeah, <clears throat> the case is Caperton versus Massey, and it's a great case. It really became uh, the subject of a John Grisham novel, actually, um, because it's it's almost unreal, uh, sort of how spectacular the facts are. In that case, there was a, a $60 million jury verdict against Massey Corporation, and the CEO of that company is Don Blankenship, who later tried to run for Senate and has, a, mm-hmm. has a, an extensive history in West Virginia. He's a big player in politics there. And uh, Blankenship and Massey had appealed that verdict against them up to the West Virginia Supreme Court. And what Blankenship realized was if he changed the composition of the West Virginia Supreme Court, he'd had a much better chance of getting that jury verdict overturned. So he invested um, $3 million in a West Virginia Supreme Court race and flipped a seat, um, basically, uh, in his favor. And, and then won the case. <laughs> and, won the, and, and won the appeal. In fact, the candidate he supported... Uh, Brent Benjamin ended up being the presiding judge uh, for a variety of reasons and was the decisive vote in overturning that uh, $60 million verdict. So there's a huge return on investment there for Blankenship to jump into that race and and fund uh, a competitor, the first Republican to win in West Virginia in a long time uh, uh, on the Supreme Court. And we may have to hear the exciting conclusion, though, right after the break, Michael. I, this is It's so interesting. Stay tuned for this. It's going to be like, what happened when this case went to the Supreme Court? We're talking with Michael Kang, co-author of Free to Judge, The Power of Campaign Money in Judicial Elections, Judge LaDoris Cordell, former Santa Clara Superior Court judge, as well as Teresa Johnson, incoming president of the Bar Association of San Francisco. Thanks so much for joining us, Teresa. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, If you want to talk about judicial elections, give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786 or email forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal, joined this morning by Judge LaDoris Cordell, wrote, uh, author of the memoir, Her Honor, My Life on the Bench, What Works, What's Broken, and How to Change It. Uh, also joined by Michael Kang, co-author of Free to Judge, uh, The Power of Campaign Money in Judicial Elections, law professor at Northwestern School of Law. Uh, Michael King, before the break, we were talking about this fascinating case in which a coal interest had donated $3 million to a West Virginia state Supreme Court uh, candidate, which ended up flipping the court, deciding, uh, and that candidate became the decisive vote. Um, This case now goes to the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court justices try and figure out, like, what do we do with this? Yeah, the the plaintiff, the the winner of the $60 million verdict, appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. And I think it was really unexpected that the U.S. Supreme Court would even take the case. The exception here uh, for requiring that uh, elected candidate, uh, Blankenship's, um, uh, the candidate that Blankenship supported, for having him recuse himself, the standard is really tough. It's it's very narrow. The judges are rarely required constitutionally to recuse. But yet the US, U.S. Supreme Court said that it seemed really unfair, that it violated due process of law here for Brent Benjamin, the judge who benefited from $3 million in campaign uh, support from Don Blankenship, um, to really decide that case. And so the U.S. Supreme Court said that that was unconstitutional, that Mm. Brent Benjamin should have recused himself from that case, shouldn't have participated. um, And uh, that jury verdict was again overturned. It was upheld. Um, what ended up happening down the road um, was that Brent Benjamin ends up di- disappointing Blankenship and a lot of his Republican supporters. Um, so uh, 12 years later, when he runs for re-election, they actually don't support him. They run a different candidate against him. Hmm. Uh, and he has to apply for public financing because he doesn't have enough campaign finance support and he ends up losing his seat. So I think the Brent Benjamin story is is really a great one for telling the story of modern judicial campaign finance, that um, certain campaign supporters can kind of uh, help get their way by spending a lot of money in these judicial races. Right. And you can see how it benefited Don Blankenship and at least initially getting his jury verdict overturned. But it also tells a story and a lesson for judges, which is if you don't do what your campaign supporters want and who put you in that seat, they can take you out uh, and they can turn against you and support someone against mm-hmm. you. And I think that sort of worry, at least subconsciously, um, affects judges who have to compete in a competitive uh, judicial election system that they worry about where the sport's going to come from next time for them to keep their jobs. One of the fascinating things about your book, right, is that the taking a judge out, like the mechanics of taking a judge out, are not always they're going to take them out based on their decisions about coal. They're going to take them out based on their decisions about other things, in particular crime, right? That's totally right. We were earlier talking about how crime uh, informs judicial elections, how it impacts how voters vote. And the big kind of inflammatory ads that are run um, by different sides in in these big state Supreme Court races uh, tend to focus on crime. Crime is what gets people's attention. It's sort of a splashy issue that creates fear among voters. And it really moves the needle in terms of creating um, 
opposition to judicial candidates. And so that's part of why judges are so wary about big criminal cases and why they end up playing it pretty safe on, on crime in the sense of being tough on crime, because they're worried that they're going to have some really inflammatory ad that's going to damage their reelection hopes um, if they decide a case a little bit too liberally, if they decide they're they're too much on the, on, on the side of criminal defendants. So what we tend to see in the empirical data is as election time approaches, judges get more conservative um, and more anti-defendant and um, tougher on crime as they start to think a little bit more about what they need to do to get reelected. Hmm. That's so fascinating. You know, um, with Citizens United, you know, dark money um, has found its way into really all corners of elections, including, you know, judicial elections. Is there something more troubling about that kind of money in judicial elections than in a campaign for, you know, Senate or, you know, some other office? I think what's different about judicial elections is, one, we have higher expectations about the candidates and the office holders that we expect them to be more objective and more impartial um, and, and and not as affected by the money, perhaps, uh, as we would see from legislative and executive candidates. It's not that we think that legislative candidates should do whatever their campaign supporters say. Um, but we sort but, of expect that. Yeah. But but it's part of the process in a way that I think violates norms and expectations about how judges behave. I think the other thing is we just know so little about um the judicial candidates, uh, as we were talking about earlier, these are low information campaigns. Um, and so the money is really important in these races. And it would be really helpful to understand who's supporting these judicial candidates, because um, it would give voters, I think, a much better context about what the stakes are in the race. Hmm. Um, to that point, Kim writes in to say, a few years ago, we at California Voter Foundation worked with Los Angeles County to amend state law to allow candidates to place electronic candidate statements on county election websites since the cost of placing printed statements in the printed guide is excessive in many counties and a major campaign expense. This reform has been implemented in L.A. and provides an affordable alternative to enable judicial candidates to provide candidate statements to voters online. These statements also provide an important accountability tool for judicial performance, hopefully other counties will follow suit. My biggest concern is that voters don't feel confident voting on judges. In addition to giving them access to more information, we should also let voters abstain from voting on judicial uh, contests. Is that a, does that seem like a good idea to you, Judge Cordell? Uh, it's a good idea to always give more information to voters as long as we have judicial elections. At the same time, who is it's important to understand who is providing the information. If I were to vote on someone who wanted to either retain her seat or someone who wanted to be a judge for the first time, I want information that tells me um, how this person is perceived by lawyers if it's a judge running for reelection. How do lawyers who have come into that person's courtroom for the, the last few years, how do they react to, respond to, critique the judge. That's important for, I think, the public to know. As well, I want to know how litigants who have come in, the non-lawyers, um, think about the judges. Now, certainly litigants who have lost, they're going to be negative about the person, but the questions ought to be about demeanor and about knowledge of the law, being prepared, those kinds of things. We don't have those. So I think, quite frankly, uh, and we used to do this, at least in Santa Clara County, judges should be evaluated 
written evaluations from lawyers and litigants, and those results then were published. And, and again, of course, there are going to be people who don't like judges because they didn't get the, the ruling they wanted. But in the main, I think lawyers can be relied upon to give very frank information, and albeit anonymously, some of them, um, about judges. So I, I applaud any effort to give more information. But if it's coming only from the person who's running, that's not, I think, not good enough. Hmm. Let's bring in uh, Richard on this topic. Richard in Nevada, welcome. Hi, uh, I have two points. One, I used to be an attorney in Chicago, and the Chicago Bar Association annually took surveys and, and uh, posted comments on every sitting Chicago judge, and the public was available. I mean, it was made available to the public so they could vote on them if they had a vote. But here in California, uh, it was a number of years ago, my memory isn't so great, there was a proposition on the ballot to which passed to ban gay marriage. And it went up to the Supreme Court of California, and most of the people on the Supreme Court of California, most of the justices voted to support that proposition. And there was very little controversy, very little public controversy about who these people were. And there should have been an effort to recall them, or at least to not uh, vote for them the next time they came up for election. And I think it's incumbent upon organizations such as yours uh, somehow to come up with some histories of some of these at least the appellate court justices and Supreme Court justices that nobody knows about. Yeah, it's a really complicated um, topic, Richard. I, I agree. We in the media clearly makes sense that we would provide more information on judges and things more like uh, that litigators have available to them. Michael King, have you seen a place in this country that has done a good job doing that, providing a more informed electorate around judicial elections? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's not really a shortage of nonprofit groups uh, that try to provide voters with information about judges. Um, I know here I live in Chicago and um, Injustice Watch is a, a group that I've been involved with. I think that does a good job in trying to provide information uh, about judicial candidates and uh, certain troubles that certain judicial candidates have had and to sort of spotlight uh, what the problems might be without um, taking too strong a side on uh, active election races. I think in the in the big metropolitan areas, there are groups that provide this good information. I think that the, the trick is providing it in a digestible way that provides voters with the salient information that they want without judges having uh, voters having to spend hours and hours studying the records of, you know, dozens and dozens of judges. We have so many races in, in the big metropolitan races uh, areas that um, uh, that can be quite a chore and not every voter is going to want to do that. So I think the key is trying to make it accessible and easy to understand for voters to get the information that they need. And, and that's not always easy to do. Yeah. You know, something, uh, a couple comments, you know, Vince writes, as someone from a European background, I find the American practice of judicial election appalling and so blatantly antithetical to equal justice before the law. Electing judges simply makes them subject to mob rule and easily removed from office should they make uh, just but unpopular ruling. In reply to one of your other callers, the judiciary must be independent from everyone, politics, the legislature, the executive and the people. A judge must rule by law, not by any influence of 
popularity. Julie writes, as an attorney, what troubles me is how politicized this has become. Attorneys are trained and typically will, whenever dissatisfied with a ruling, seek motion for reconsideration or take a writ. Judges are very nervous about being reversed for failure to follow the law. Currently, it appears easier to go to a microphone to criticize a judge. The judges are following the law, and if prosecutors, or for that matter, anyone disagrees with the law, they should lobby to change it. So I think what we're what we're seeing uh, in comments as, and as well as uh, callers um, is this kind of great ambivalence that's kind of baked into the system about should judges be uh, subject to democratic um, uh, norms that we have for other types of officers of the state, or should we uh, not have that? And um, Judge Cordell, people have tried to kind of split the difference, right? People have tried to say, well, you know what, maybe we can do some version of elections, but not the one that has currently developed with, you know, big budgets and all these things that make things more difficult. So what reiterate maybe for us what your plan would be if you, you know, could uh, to, could run the world. Sure. Judges are not politicians. Politicians make promises to their constituents to give the constituents whatever they want. And that's fine. That's what politicians do. Judges only make one promise. And that promise is to uphold the laws, to support the constitutions of the United States and of their particular states. So I believe that as long as we have judicial elections, we cannot have judicial independence. That is, judges who are ruling on what happens in that courtroom and doing what they believe is right um, and following the law, of course. So my view is that, um, but I'm also realistic. I do not believe that we are going to ever get rid of judicial elections in this country. I, I say this sadly, but I don't believe we are, even as much as some of us continue to speak out because people like voting. They feel like they should you know, hold judges accountable, and this is the way of holding judges accountable, when in fact they can be held accountable and are by appellate courts and by uh, recalls. There, there are different mechanisms there. So um, until we get rid of judicial elections, my view is we should think more about the merit selection commissions that we have here in California. They, they are here alongside judicial elections and make it so the governor has to support the recommendations that are coming out. It can't just go rogue and pick anyone uh, he or she wants. Um, in addition, I like the idea uh, Michael Kang, Professor Kang has come up with in his book about as long as we have elections, uh, there may be an alternative. And I'll leave it for him to talk about um, what what yeah. he sees, because I think it's a possibility. Yeah, sure. Michael, let, let's what's your approach to reform here? Yeah, I agree with the judge that um, judicial elections probably aren't going to go away. They're really politically popular. So the thing that we propose is. Uh, have judicial elections to pick the judges, um, but limit the judges to a single long term. Uh, that way they don't face any kind of re-election worries. And what we found is when we look at judges that are ineligible for re-election, a lot of states have mandatory retirement ages. So at some point, judges know, we ca I can't run again for re-election. We find that the effective money uh, largely disappears. Um, it drops off by half to two thirds. Um, so suddenly when judges don't have to worry about re-election, they seem freer to judge the way that they think that they ought to and not worry as much about the money. Now, 
we're on the side of judges. We think judges are put in a very difficult position um, by our election system. So we're not accusing judges who face elect re-election uh, of doing something, you know, kind of consciously wrong. But we do find but that maybe judges... you should. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's probably true for some of the judges, but we think most judges are actually trying to do a good job. Um, but we put them in a system that uh, requires them in effect, to uh, raise money to keep their jobs. Um, and so it, it's only natural that they think about that some of the time, even though we don't want them to. And so our proposal is really to take that temptation away. To, so if, they, if they're not eligible for re-election, but they have a long term, so they're there for a what long time. What are we talking, time. 10 years? Eight years, well, we 15? Proposed 14 years 14. Um, based on the current terms. Our thinking was we don't want to change the incentives for the job. We don't want to change too much who runs for judge. Um, uh, we want this to be someone who's pretty distinguished and experienced in their career enough that we, we trust them to be a judge. And we don't want judges to, to think too much about what their next job is going to be. So we want them to have a long-term uh, job where they're secure in their job, they invest in it, and they, they're not thinking about the next thing. Um, so 14 years is sort of what we hit upon, although we're not uh, you know, uh, insistent on 14 years as opposed to 10 or something like that. The idea is to have a long-term where judges feel seated and secure in their job uh, and aren't thinking about the next thing, because that seems to be what drives a lot of the effective money, that the judges are thinking about what the next step is, whether it's re-election or something else. And we want to remove that temptation from judicial thinking and, and focus judges on doing the best job that they can for the public. Yeah. Last couple of comments here. Pam writes, uh, because I'm a political activist, people often ask me how to vote on judges. I always say I vote yes on all judges parenthetically, unless there's some really obvious evidence of corruption or something like that, precisely because I don't think judges should be subject to elections. On the other hand, Claire writes, by not having term limits at the trial court level and criticizing anyone who runs against a sitting judge, we've created, in essence, lifetime appointments for the lower court, and the public has no voice or opportunity to weigh in. This does not make sense. And I think what she's saying there, uh, Michael Kang, is just that if there are other ways of creating what's essentially a long appointment, which might be, you know, pressure from inside the legal industry, but that doesn't feel like exactly the kind of thing that can be codified or that would work maybe fairly across all jurisdictions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what we're trying to do is put judges in the best position to do mm -hmm. their job and to be free from kind of political pressures. Yeah. And so the, the, the long the long term, I think, wouldn't change incentives for judges. Um, part of what we're doing, and we explain this in the book, is um, try to map onto what we see now where judges end up serving about 12 years on average, yeah. 12 to 14 mm -hmm. years on average, even with re-election. And yeah. so we want to just take out the need to run for re-election because that's what drives a lot of the worries that we see. Yeah, It's a great book, Free to Judge, The Power of Campaign Money in Judicial Elections, co-authored by Michael Kang, one of our guests this morning. This has been part of our uh, Doing Democracy series. We've been talking about judicial elections. Also joined by Judge LaDoris Cordell, former Superior Court judge and author of the memoir, Her Honor, My Life on the Bench, What Works, What's Broken, and How to Change It. Thank you so much for joining us, Judge Cordell. Earlier, we were joined by Teresa Johnson, incoming president of the Bar Association of San Francisco, partner at the law firm Arnold & Porter. This show is inspired by listeners like you on Discord. Thank you again, Rich. Stay tuned for another hour of Form Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, 
the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.